Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. In today's episode, part two of my interview with Tony and Josephine Sukar, who started BuildCorp 30 years ago out of the ashes of a failed skyscraper project. Their shared ethos of teamwork, backed by family values and integrity, not only underpinned building up their business empire from scratch, but it's also been the foundation stone of their philanthropic work and helping start women's rugby in Australia. Josephine and Tony Sukar, in the beginning, was it, apart from the two towers that you mm. were going to deliver, was it a smaller vision? Was it a, we'll just have a business that the two of us can kind of manage? Or was it a big vision? We can build something big here. It was a small, it was a small vision. Small vision? And no doubting a small vision, which would then continue to grow and, you know, we'd love to be able to say, you know, we always believe we're going to be one day turning over and today we'll turn over 600 odd million in this financial year and, and we never look at revenue growth as part of our plan we look at our sustainable business model that's around us having the capability and staff to allow us to go to the next step and every step of the way it's around us ensuring that we've got sustainable growth control is what we've always wanted yeah the easiest thing to do would have been to make this business 15 years ago a billion dollar business that's the easiest thing to make so you it could a profitable have grown it that's up so to easy that. Any, yeah. anyone can do that. that that's the easy piece um and in fact there have been years where we've said pull it back let's let's pull it back and just can continue to buffer with bottom line profit line focused you have to be because we we are the we have come out of the worst case for BuildCorp, which would be the company goes over and 350 people are without jobs. We lived that, right? We were the couple who had a baby and were in the middle of a mortgage and all of a sudden had nobody working. That for us is what we never, ever want to do to our people and that totally changes your um risk appetite. Uh, clearly you need to take some risk to be entrepreneurial, but you know what you'll never do to your people. Now, we've had people here in the organisation for the full run of it, right? We can't, um, un- you can't underestimate how it informs your decision making when you've been that person, when you've been that partner, when you've been that woman. So when you put your people first, and you can people can say it and pay it lip service, but when you put your people first, they then look after you. So Tony and I these days, we don't get to every project that we build. We don't, we... We met someone, I met someone for the first time in the lift today coming up who's been with us since October. Maybe I met him at the Christmas party, I'm not sure. But I know and I'm so comfortable. They hold our reputation in their hands and they will only do that and do that well if they trust you and know that all the decisions you're making are ensuring that you don't put at risk their ability to pay their children's school fees, cover their mortgages, do you know? So, um, yeah, that I think that informed decision-making. The other thing is we were really... 
we didn't have access to funds to put ourselves through MBAs and the like. So we worked really hard at educating ourselves. And every trip into town, we remember what were the name of those audio tapes, Tony? We'd buy the um by Brian. Tracy, Tracy yeah. and um, there was another fellow I can't remember his name. We to um, like teaching on audio, teaching tapes. So leader, leadership, to management, best practice, time management, and I can remember one that Earl we listened Nightingale to was, was Earl Nightingale, mm-hmm. uh, and one when you asked us about planning earlier. I can remember one of them. This is in late 80s, 1990, um, the Harvard Business Review study that this particular fellow was sharing on this tape that showed that anybody who didn't have a who had a business plan regardless of whether it was scratched scribbled onto the back of a napkin in a restaurant was 90% or something like that more likely to succeed as a business than a well-funded business that had no plan it didn't matter how um, small and um, you know what may feel immaterial it was just that thinking and writing it down uh, we made sure that we always had a personal plan that we wrote down and reviewed every uh, three to five years and a business plan and that they both interrelated and looked after the other. Is the teamwork still very much you co-make a lot of decisions maybe not every decision but are you in there as much these days with decision making Josephine? So project and business base so operationally um, probably I'm running with the project side of the business and Joseph and I spend a lot of time on the the non-project side regularly we, we probably have you know, two-thirds of our day spent together working and working on the business um, so on the non-project side of it so how do we ensure that our teams are growing and learning and and becoming the best happy. they can be if they can be the best they can be we can then be the best business and we, we've won employer um, of choice award two years in in a row um, first construction um, business to to achieve to be the employer of choice um, the Australian business awards um, but then do it two years in a row and we've got a net promoter score um, that comes out of our surveys with our our um, teams that are um, in that in that level that are in the excellent Sort of um, yeah. um, strata. So they're things Fantastic. around people, um, and where most of our time is spent on on our teams and our people, and then our clients get the benefit of that, and then it becomes a self fulfilling uh, prophecy because our our teams are uh, great at what they do. Um, they they work well and they're well gelled. They work as teams, and our clients become the beneficiaries, and then we get repeat. Business. Yeah, Josephine, how do you see the values? part of the equation that Tony talked about before, family values, Christian values seem to really be the start of Mm. what motivates and drives him. Well, they're exactly the same, to be honest with you. And I think when you come together as a young couple, you're perhaps more um, nimble and agile and and you grow and continue to develop and evolve those values together, whereas perhaps if we'd met in our 40s it might have been a bit, you know, different. We may, we may have been a little more fixed. But there's no question for us uh, coming together with parents of very similar values just makes that journey really easy. And we haven't, we didn't have the time when we began the business to overthink well, how are we going to create a culture here. We just 
knew what we were exposed to, which was um, what we saw in our families and what we were exposed to briefly at Land Lease. And that was about looking after your people and putting them first. And But you have to do that consistently all the time and you have to live those values personally. So everyone at Build Corp is, we sit outside here in open plan outside this boardroom. People are used to seeing Tony and I together and how we um, relate to each other and communicate with each other. And what we expect from them, we don't do anything different together. So no one at Build Corp would have ever seen Tony and I fight ever. And in fact, no of the children. Is that children. because you don't or you just do it in private? Well, we do it respectfully, you right. know, and that be, and, and it's a so bit like a muscle. you disagree, but respectfully. Of course, we all, of course we disagree, but we always disagree. If we do it, we do it respectfully and and we know how to do that. So right down to um, we're in the middle of another big renovation at home and, and this must be the seventh or eighth and people <laughs> say, God, how do you do it? And, I, you know, if, if I like the yellow tile and Tony likes the blue tile and we go, well, I really love the yellow, I really love the blue, we go, okay, we need to find another one. There's another option that we'll both like and inevitably – that decision when we think a bit harder actually ends up better than where we were in our first you when know, you both choice. wanted something different. Yeah. And I would carry that over to every decision in our lives, right? And our, our staff, all of our staff will tell you that. Our kids will tell you that. And like any muscle, the more you do it, the more you exercise it, it works. You have to live your values. And you can't say, here are our values, integrity, you know, um, this, that, and then they, our people or our children see us do something different. And you can't just say, it was only just that one day or that one time or that you, you lose credibility immediately. You have to be authentic and that's the authentic leadership piece because even when you get it wrong and you make a decision and it may not be you may have, you know, lost a million dollars on that project or make a decision that isn't perhaps an optimal decision in that time because you don't, all your decisions are never always going to be right. If everyone working with you understands why you made that decision and that it was coming from a place of of genuine integrity and you know they, they'll stand by you which actually brings me to a, a thought about you know construction is known as a bit of a dog eat dog industry cutthroat on undercutting on contracts now and also very adversarial litigious between often builders and clients and, you know, things end, end up in court. But you purposefully went against that model, didn't you, Tony and Josephine? Tell me how and, and what is your model then, why you did that? So probably along the way there have been some scars um, and, and one of our, um, our seven values is continual learning. So if we haven't learnt um, from some of those decisions that Josephine talked about, that we, you know, we have made some decisions that that have either cost us money or, or cost us reputation that we've learnt from. So what we have learnt is we know that our relationships and our partnerships, both with our clients and our subcontractors, all our suppliers are really important to us. So you know, we, we call them partnerships. So any engagement on projects has got to be around us having the skills in the first place, having the capacity, having um, the ability to deliver on that project. So we, we've become very good at saying no to projects. So we, we're choosing ones that we know that are going to suit us um, and suit our clients. So that means the outcome, much more often than not, nearly hopefully a certainty, is going to yield a result that is not only financially um, positive for us, financially positive for our client, and we and we have a relationship that leads on to if the client is a multi-user um, or multi-developer, we have repeat business with that client. So, so you've got to start with the right ingredients um, and, and the ball's in our court. If, if we decide where we know that client um, has that adversarial um, 
characteristics, then you, you don't go in there. Or it's a project that is just going to be very, very difficult to build. Um, the expectations are beyond what can be done. Well, we just say that's not for us. Does it also extend to we're not Build Corp's not going to cut its margins just to win a job? Well, and uh, and was that from the beginning? That's a, a very good point. But when the GFC came along mm. in the first year or two of the GFC, um, yep. 2009, 2010, um, margins were way below zero. Um, builders were putting in minus 5, minus 10% prices to work on the basis either to just keep cash flow going in their business or on the basis um, they were going to make it out of um, variations or screwing their subcontractors. Um, and it led to tears and there was probably four or five um, contractors, um, mid-sized contractors of our size going into receivership. Um, one or two have been able to climb their way back out. But we had a company, um, 100-year-old business, in the industry um, that went Callum bust. Rigby. Um, yeah. Callum Rigby. Yeah. Callum went Rigby went under and it was devastating to all of us actually because they were just the hallmark and such a great benchmark. And when Callum Rigby go under, you know that, yeah. Yeah. So did you have to cut your margins too we, like everybody we, else? We then, with, no. there were certain markets that, and, and it was the building. So our business, um, we have sort of four business units, yeah. the remedial side, um, the fit out side, the refurbishment and new building and a joinery business. And the fit out and refurb work um, as one one business unit. So, the the business that was probably suffering the most was the new build. That's where um, the markets very much crashed, and there was no whatever work was out there was highly sought after, and where where pricing was um, at a level where we withdrew from the tender market. So, well, the only work we would do is if we negotiated with a client. So. That was that was a very strategic point. People at yeah. the time thought we're either crazy or brave. Um, as or it turned we were out, in trouble. <laughs> so that was. So they interpreted it that you they, might have been in trouble. Yep, and the phones began to ring. Like, why are you choosing not to price this? Are you in trouble? And that can really send such a shiver through any business. That confidence and. Um, yeah, fast forward probably two years after that decision we made, which was a brave decision. We we're getting phone calls from nearly the same people. Yeah, it was that was brave. Now, in hindsight, um, the right decision because so you got some work, but not tendered. Not tendered, and, tender and it was less it. work being done. Right, but that was okay by us um, yep. because it was then choosing the right, the right, the right, yeah. it was the so right it was decision. It was, just, it was decision making that was going to be sustainable for the business, not just trying to satisfy cash flow. Yeah, you do. You are known for relationships, and and you've talked about this importance of values and you've got to live it every day, you put a huge amount of work into relationships. In the end, is everything in business, being an entrepreneur, having your own business, is it really all about relationships with people, be it staff, clients, bank managers, lawyers, each other? Well, I think that, well, it's either a relationship, it's relationship-based or it's transactional based, right? And transactional is probably, you know, when we order our staples and our papers and that, and that's transactional. But the business piece today, I think is relationship based because it's around trust. And if we look at uh, businesses today and governments today, we have a, an enormous trust deficit. And we know that through the GFC, interestingly, we were put into projects often from second or third place if we were, you know, ten or looked at because Boards got very nervous uh, to engage with construction companies where they could see a number of them were going over. We didn't realise that trust was something that a business could commercialise um, 
if you were consistently could behave like a trusted partner and to trust, do you trust a brand or do you trust a person? Right? And I, and I, you know, I think being that face and we'd been around for a very long time and, and the market could see how we had run our business and we realised that very quickly some of those, those GFC years were actually our most profitable years. Um, what's noble about pricing a project at negative margins with a view to screwing your subcontractors or hitting clients with variations? What's noble about killing a whole supply? You know, there's nothing around those behaviours that aligned with who we were or our values. Those subcontractors were also, you know, people who we knew were, were had grown up, you know, grown up with, related to. Um, and I don't know how you get away from that relationship piece wherever you are because trust is what keeps businesses um, whole and together and yeah. Have you come close to going under? Uh, not close to going under. We've been clear there's been no, years. No, sorry. No. no. Um, but there's been years where you know, cash flow has been tighter. So, um, and that's where we adjust um, our, um, we cut our, our cloth to suit. So, um, you, you then rationalise what your business is about. Um, and we had a period when the GFC did come along. We, we asked, all our staff to say, well, we, we don't want to let any of you go, so let's get together and um, we prepared a plan, talked to our senior managers and said, if we can get a number of our staff taking going back to a four-day week, um, taking a pay cut of, I think from memory at the time, was five, a 5% 5 pay cut, and we had unanimous um, agreement of that. And that was around saying, so how do we actually keep... They our, voted on it, did they? Yeah, yeah because we... Y y the thing that's worked for BuildCorp is we've been open about everything. We, we appointed an external advisory board a number of years ago and the very first meeting they had, they were shocked at how much information we actually gave our people and our bankers and stakeholders. They're like, what are you doing? You're not a public company. But it's been that transparency that has allowed our people to have a chance to say, but if you do it this way, you know, Tony, it'll actually help you here or our bankers and auditors and, you know, insurance brokers to say, have you ever considered? So... For us, that transparency has actually helped us with the business and the same happened in 2000 when the uh, GST was introduced, the Olympic Games were coming and uh, leading up to September when the Games were on, we had this flurry of work and then our forward workload, it just dropped off the cliff and we could see that coming and we had a similar discussion again with staff that said, here's what's coming. It costs us so much money. If we've got to let, you know, 10% of you go. When the market picks up again, we've got to go back and find 10% of you and that's a cost to the business. Uh, how, do, how do we know who's going to be a build corp fit? We've probably got to go through two or three candidates before we get it right and then by the time they get to know our build corp way, etc. So what do you reckon? And that heavy thinking shared has always helped us, hasn't it, Tone? Yeah, so we've never had a, a loss year. We've had no. a couple of lean years um, in, in our time but just means that you – you look at your business in a manner that is sustainable and how, how do you adjust your business model to deal with the circumstances or look at its strategies that so we, we're quite diverse so we're in different markets mm. in different states so we've tried to not sort of be in the one market so if that market comes to a, a, a slowdown as we saw residential probably two or three years years ago it slowed down all of a sudden you know contractors were starting to go where's my next jobs coming from well we, we're interstate we're in different markets and we're able to be quite nimble we've deliberately structured our business units so that they're they're in sectors that peak and trough at different times and that just buffers our bot our financial bottom line you mentioned before that you have made mistakes 
Were they something you can give me an example of one? Distance is, is a, a big piece for us. So one of the reasons we're on the eastern seaboard only, we don't go into, say, the likes of um, South Australia or Perth. Um, so geographically on the eastern seaboard, I can be in all three states in a number of times in the one day, um, start in Sydney, some meetings here, go to Brisbane in the afternoon and then fly, fly to Melbourne and make sure that I'm across and Josephine is across what we're doing. Each. So we're very hands-on. So we've learnt that um, doing projects in remote parts of Australia cost us, cost us reputation, cost us financially. So if we continue to do the things we know within our capability and we can control, then um, so it's when we haven't followed those principles. And in some of the early days, we didn't necessarily understand those principles. So we've had to sort of build those structures. To but we, we never know, do we, when we've gone too far? Until we've gone too far and then you've sort of got to pull it back. And I remember our first foray into Queensland. Um, that was difficult for us and we had to pull back and we lost some money, um, quite a bit of money in Queensland actually. And when we sat down and re- revisited that business plan and said, okay, what did we do wrong if we were to go back in there again? What would it look like? Our staff, because of the nature of our business, were at us, what are you guys doing? You can't make money in Queensland. Remember what happened last time? I go, no, but here's what we think we did wrong and here's what we're going to pivot. And they were like, okay, if you think it's a good idea. And that's the piece of trust again. If, if you, if we can be clear and transparent about why we think this might be a bit different and better, what we're changing, um, hear what they've got to say to help us on the journey. And now Queensland is one of our most profitable states, which is great. But, um, certainly there's no question that, uh, we've made lots of mistakes, but we never know when we've gone too big or too far until we do. But, Tony and I spend a lot of our time dividing and conquering. Like I think a Tuesday I'm in Melbourne for a tender interview for the business down there. Tony is in Queensland, I think, after that. It, it helps having the two of us, there's no question, and the business knows that um, a response from either one of us, we tr- you've got to try and make sure that staff don't have to go, I need to sign off from Tony, I need to sign and off from Josephine. Go, yeah. That's just a nightmare. Then They just need to know. In fact, they call us Tojo. <laughs> Tojo, love it. Oh, started with our cheeky children and kind of got out of the bag, yeah. The, you also give back, which I guess really fits in with what you've been talking about with your values. You started a foundation and it perhaps had small aims in the beginning and it's just enormously grown. Why do you think that's important? You're supporting prevention of suicide is a big issue for you. Why was that important to start the foundation and do that? The initial intention with the foundation was we realised we were doing what every corporate does, giving away a lot, and I had had some exposure to the not-for-profit sector over a number of years and also at a commercial level I was a director of a company called The Trust Company, which we sold to uh, Perpetual. And part of my role on the board was I oversaw the – there were half a billion dollars of philanthropic trusts under under. Um, funds under management, sorry, and that was part of my responsibility. So I got really lovely exposure to uh, what it was like with your hand out when you're a not-for-profit, you know, chairing a not-for-profit board or working on a committee, and this put me on the other side of that equation as somebody who was um, responsible for giving money away well. And so I realised that um, for a whole bunch of lovely reasons – I was probably pretty well equipped to set up and run a foundation. I knew how to do that because that's what the trust company did. I knew how to give money away well because I'd learned that and we thought it might be a nice thing for our staff to engage with us and and let's pick one um, uh, 
issue and let's do a big one cause and do a big. So we then, in a very build called way, shot an email out to everybody. Here's what we're doing. Give us something you'd like us support us to support, not a charity but a cause. I knew how to assess charities as to, you know, uh, the efficiency of those. So, And the very first year that actually selected autism. One of our project managers had a little girl who was suffering pretty badly from autism and they saw that and wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with their colleague and so said, let's get behind that. So we did. Um, But again, in a very Build Corp way, they knew everything we were trying to do and, and our objects were our objectives were quite modest, really. We said, Tony and I said, let's give ourselves 10 years to raise a million dollars. And when interest rates, when cash rates weren't what they are today, we said, you know, let's imagine 6%, a million dollars can spin off 60,000 every year. And every year the staff can vote to where that money goes. Fabulous um, idea. Yeah. Um, our people thought that was aiming a bit low. <laughs> um, and before you know it, we'd raised twice as much money in half the time and they... So you'd raised $2 million in five years. Correct. That's right. Wow. And as cash rates began to uh, move down and the incidence of suicide in male construction workers began to increase exponentially, um, they mental health became something that they wanted to uh, support. So as the emails would go out every year, what do you want us to support? Mental health, mental health. Then the community rise in mental health issues came along and we just went, should we just concentrate on this? It also helped our people um, be very clear about what we were supporting. And, and these days we are trying to span the mental health spectrum where each year Lifeline receives $200,000 from us and we tell their chair, John Brogdon, to just forecast for that, just know you'll get two hundred from the Bill Corp Foundation. And um, but there's a big party that's going to happen. This is where most of the funds come from. There's a party in the backyard that happens at our home with 850 guests. And last year we raised 600000 on the night. It's fully underwritten by partners, our clients, our, our um, subcontractors, suppliers, family, all come on board and uh, sponsor the event. So we uh, the event has no costs. The foundation has no running costs. We absorb all of that at BuildCorp. And um, they trust us, but our people keep pushing us for bigger and better and more. And so they've taken it to somewhere we never expected. And today, there are 100,000 primary school children uh, being trained in mindfulness and 8,000 teachers. Uh, and we're really proud of that. And we're about to extend that again. So it's very exciting. We're working, we're partnering with the Department of Education. It's great. Now, we could talk about this next subject all day, but I, I won't keep you too long. You both adore rugby now, both of you. Tony, you played first grade Sydney Uni, but you've incorporated it in a big way into your business. How? Why is rugby so important to the business now and what you learned from rugby? Well, the fact that it's a team sport um, and we are in a team-based industry, so so the the parallels uh, from a, a business viewpoint and just the way that they both operate and, and I'm able to use regularly um, examples of how teamwork works in in a business sense and also how it works in sport. And I use the analogies if I'm talking to someone at, at um, the, the rugby club, the University Rugby Club, and which we now sponsor four university rugby clubs. So those parallels are always front of mind and just the spirit of playing team sport and, and it's, it's, a, it's a passion of mine. Um, I think um, as I stated right at the beginning of, of our discussion this morning, how my first 
phone call when I arrived back in Australia was to pick the phone up and ring my good friend Monty Gibson and say, um, what's happening on the rugby field? Where can I get a game? Josephine, you've also become a great lover of rugby. You helped advocate for women's rugby, the super rugby, super W. You've now had, what, two seasons mm. and you also sponsor the Wallaroos. Why was that important? Give us the I guess briefly, why you felt passionate about that, that women should be given a chance? So I guess women who play rugby are not dissimilar to women in construction. There aren't very many of them. And your first perception might be, you know, women trying to do men's things, you know, building things and playing football and tackling each other. Uh, but the reality is there are lots of women who were passionate about uh, construction, but the environment could be quite hostile on site. And certainly in the 80s, you can only imagine what was sitting inside side sheds and the, na and the nature and engagement with women. It was a very hostile place. I was lucky I seemed to avoid most of that and it was probably because I had the same surname as uh, someone there that they respected. So I, I didn't experience any of that directly, but that was absolutely the times. And I knew how that felt. But that was in the days when job adverts were for, you know, advertisers for women and girls and men and boys, you know. So yeah. that that was part of the time and I and I hear all that. Um there but I understood the coming from construction That's right. sites. And that was the gentle bit. It was what happened inside sheds. It was awful. And in fact I had lunch with a, a client yesterday who was an engineer and her first job was, was with one of the large international engineering firms and she was sharing a time when she first arrived on site and went into a site shed and she was a young cadet and there was a pornographic photograph of a young girl, uh, her, one of her colleagues, another cadet, with her head on the face of a like, – it was, it was awful, so hostile. So even if the women came in through the pipelines through the universities, retention was an issue. This is still hard in construction and still hard in – because the nature of construction projects, the sites open really early. Australia is a hot place. You don't want to open a site at 9 o'clock. Everyone's going to be sweltering and gone. So we open the sites early, uh, which can be difficult if you're dropping children off to school. Uh, the construction sites typically still work a six-day week. and so, so the environment's difficult and it's the same for women in rugby. The uh, – very few change rooms for women. So if you wanted to play rugby, where are you going to change and get dressed? Who's going to coach you? Are there enough other women to do it? And at 15 years into the sponsorship of Sydney University, uh, um, I received a visit from a group of women introducing themselves as the um, Sydney University Women's Rugby Club and they were accompanied by the president of the Sydney University Sports Union, a man who I knew, asking if we'd sponsor them. And I said, well, I don't. I'd never seen Who you. Who are you and well, do you play? Well, and more shockingly, Tony and I had attended every home game at Sydney University for probably the last 15 years and I said, I have never seen you there. If you're, How come I've never seen you? And they went, oh, no, we're not allowed to play on the ovals of Sydney Uni. Oh. And we play at Seven Hills and at Marrickville and all these at different times. And it was the first time I'd had visibility to what it was like to be a woman in rugby and we, by that stage, our name, our company name had become so synonymous with rugby um, but the treatment of the women was not synonymous with how we valued women at Build Corp. And I, we have a son and a daughter. I don't have any less expectations for her than him. And we, you know, we, we never treated them differently. And it was it was just a very uh, difficult thing for us to watch. So of course we sponsored them, and it just gave me visibility to what was happening more broadly. And then I ended up on the radar of Australian women rugby players and. Here I am now today. <laughs> You've been a great advocate. You're, you're underselling your own skills in getting rugby to move 
towards a, a women's competition? Look, I, th- I think there's no question that y- you can advocate as much as you like, right? Because we all know what, what the right what right looks like. But sometimes there's a level of carrot and stick. And Tony and I being in a position to, with some competitions that we were getting behind, removing significant funds from governing bodies or not offering them or, you know, using the sponsorship as a lever to try and encourage the right structures and pathways and opportunities, I think, is uh, useful. How much of your success, I just want to ask you both briefly, how much of your success, Tony, is your skills, your intelligence, your hard work, in other words, you, and how much is luck? Hard work plays a major part in it, and no doubting um, that's in part of my pathway right through through life. Um, I think my early experience, um, albeit going overseas and, and being in, being um, involved in in risk, um, and and therefore having to confront those situations, has probably helped um, me develop a level of that courage that you need to make sometimes um, decisions that might have a level of risk to them um, but then luck and um, you look at what happens on the likes of a citadel towers um, that luck piece is could have easily been yep company goes broke you then get taken up by the next company who come along and yeah. take the project over and you know it's a it's a sliding doors piece um, by the way we, we had the opportunity to and I had the opportunity to um, be employed by a, one of the Australia's largest contractors to take uh, to be part of their team and run the project for them. Um, Joseph and I t- talked about it, and I said, "Listen, I, I would rather do this in our own right. If if we're unsuccessful mm. in taking this project over, so you we'll could go have off. kept going as a no doubt highly salaried senior manager or CEO. At one point in time, um, our client decided on that on that pathway, mm. and then when I rejected the opportunity to work for um, one of the multinationals um, they came back within 24 hours and said um, we're going to go with you so so that hopefully that um, that was talk, scary talk, decisions talks, though because that meant no one had a job <laughs> so it talks to the conviction um, around purpose um, and our purpose was that well this is an opportunity now we either go alone on this project or um, if not we'll go off and start start our own business. But this is what I mean about you could have stayed, you both could have had good corporate careers, well paid, got to very high levels, but you took this great leap of faith, backed yourselves. I think we realised early that we, we could work together because a couple of the sites that I was posted on, Tony was on, and we learned early we were really good at working together. We have very complementary skills. Often you'll hear me on podcasts and not Tony, but really people need to hear from Tony because um, people want to follow Tony. He's a genuine leader and he, he says very little, but when he does, people listen. And But we both recognise where our strengths are and we've both learned how to use them. Um, one of our marketing people in here tells us, you know, one plus one can equal three if you do it well, right? And we've been really fortunate because we've realised that we, we know how to work well. There is nothing we do, whether it's together at Build Corp or individually and some of the other things we're involved in, whether it's rugby for Tony or the opera company for me or the museum or public company boards or whatever I do. Um, we make every decision to do anything individually or together, together. 
And tonight Tony's off to opening night of the opera with me again. And in fact, I think Tony's probably more passionate about it these days. And it's not that I'm not passionate about it. I love it. But Tony's another level. Mm. (laughs) And But this is how it is. And and I am more involved in rugby union these days, arguably, than Tony is. And uh, I think we had a realisation one night when I was reading board papers for uh, the Australian Rugby Union and Tony was reading board papers for a a girls' school he was on the school council of and we looked at each other and went, what happened with our lives? How did this get so flipped and (laughs) reversed? But I think that's probably testament to the fact that we know how to work well and complement each other. What's your business motto, if you have one? I haven't got one. <laughs> we always talk about the build. Well, our people talk about the build corp way. The first time we sat down to develop a, a set of values, we were downstairs. Our boardroom was downstairs in those days. And the first time we heard, a number of our people said, well, whatever they are, they've just got to, if someone doesn't do stuff the build corp way, well, then they're not welcome here. And Tony and I looked at each other and went, wonder what that is, <laughs> you know, and, and that realisation that you can't, um, you know, demand a culture down. It has got to evolve from the base. Uh, we try to make sure we get to every single uh, future employer of BuildCorp. We we uh, in- interview every cadet. We sit and partner. Tony and I split. I take all the women cadets. Tony takes the boy cadets. We catch up with them twice a year, individually, one-on-one, uh, mentoring, working with Lift and Develop Our Leaders. We've just run a, a very big uh, leadership training course for our executive. We brought someone out from INSEAD, uh, the next level. that We invest in training. We invest in them. And um, there just is nothing more important. Our son has come into the business uh, these days, and that's exciting for us. And uh, and seeing the way our people are embracing him and work, getting around him and um, ensuring that he is becoming equipped to one day lead the business, I, I can't believe how incredibly generous they've been, but it talks the quality of these people. Do you have a life motto? No, well, now I feel well, like yeah, no, we, we don't. We, we, and- Back to my earlier comment, we haven't got mottos, but um, we are quite fixated on ensuring um, that we have a set of values that we, our family values that we live by, but also the values, and back to your earlier um, question, Helen, the seven values of our business and I mean, from teamwork and continual learning and preparedness um, and, and passion are all things. And we, we select our staff around a fit on on our values first, and if we get that right, we can then, if they've got technical skills, um, and and you couple them together. If those technical skills aren't there, especially our youth who join us, uh, we'll teach them. We can teach that. We uh, can't that, teach those skills, um, but they've got to have the potential to be able to learn and, and develop. And we've got to make sure we put them in the right positions around their personality type. So from that viewpoint, you know, we will just continue to um, enjoy what we – we want to do things that we enjoy doing. So anything from the philanthropic work that we do through to what we do at work and the sort of projects and the sort of people we employ and the people who we deal with and, and enjoy the company of is around saying, um, do we get on? And if we get on um, and we like each other, we'll work well with each other and continue to do the things that um, – We'll get we'll get something out of um, in a lot of instances these days, especially around our philanthropic work. It's the more we put in, the more we're enjoying um, the more we're help, helping yeah. helping those who um, need need our support, um, either financial or sometimes it's just engaging with them and, and the 
the women piece in, in rugby is very much where now. We just recently um, became part of another group called um, International Rugby um, Australian Academy, um, which was established in Australian Academy for young players, um, men and women and, and coaches, because there was no Australian Academy to teach. Um, so the first, their first week of an academy was this week and um, pulled together by David Baskey and, um, and David Mortimer, um, who, who established with, with another colleague called Tim, Tim Lay, and they established it, and we've come on board as an investor and, and a sponsor in that. But it's once again back into the youth, helping young people grow, um, become the best they can be. And we know out of that there's a lot of joy. And we're not trying to be something that we're not. Uh, so. And use our influence well. We recognise now at our age and stage we have some influence and, and a careful, careful use of it because it can be dangerous, not used well. We're always conscious of that, aren't we, Tone? And whilst we um, we are building things, one thing we do um, believe that we have been doing well is building our people. Um, and the more we can build them, the the better our business becomes. So we'll continue to build our people and work with our two children. You know, working, we spend as much time with them to, for them to be the best they can be. We build the people that build the buildings is what we tell our leaders. Mm-hmm. Our oh, jobs a motto. to build the people that build the buildings. Yeah. yeah. I've taken up a lot of your time, Josephine and Tony Sukha. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Pleasure. Thanks Pleasure. so much, Helen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.